Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Mama Mystery. I am your host, Kelly, and today I'm bringing to you a heartbreaking story out of a suburb in Dallas, Texas, about a mom accused of the absolute worst thing any parent could ever be accused of, killing her own two sons. But in this episode, we will discuss the details of the case from both sides, and you'll be left to decide for yourself if you believe this mother was capable of the unthinkable or if you think this mom was wrongfully convicted. This is the story of Darlie Lynn Rudier. Darlie Lynn Peck was born on January 4th of 1970 in Pennsylvania, but when she was a teenager, she moved with her mom and stepfather to Lubbock, Texas. The city of Lubbock is pretty big and home to Texas Tech. Darley met her husband, Darren, in Lubbock, Texas at the Western Sizzlin Steakhouse. Darley had that quintessential big blonde Texas hair. She was always done up like a Barbie. Darley and Darren got married in 1988, and they had Devin almost exactly nine months later on June 14th of 1989. Devin Rush Rudier was described by his father as a little stuntman. He wasn't afraid of anything. He was bold and outgoing. You could catch him doing backflips off of diving boards at only two years old. He loved to make people laugh, and I just imagine him as this little showboater. Damon Christian Rudier was born soon after, on February 19th of 1991. At just 20 months apart, Damon was the complete opposite of Devin. The brothers were like night and day. Damon was very sweet-natured. He loved to cuddle with his mom, and he wouldn't even go upstairs without an adult. He was very soft-hearted and just sweet. And last came Drake. Drake was born in late 1995, and at the time of this story, he was only seven or eight months old. Darley was a stay-at-home mom and a very doting mother. Kids always wanted to be at their house. She would keep snacks and popsicles for the kids, and everyone in the neighborhood knew the Rudiers. They were very well-liked. Darren started his own tech company called Testneck. They specialized in electronics and circuit boards, and his business really took off. They started making really good money and actually built a beautiful home in Rowlett, Texas within Dallas. Their house was a beautiful two-story brick home with columns hugging the sides of the white front doors. The white paned windows had black shutters on either side. It's kind of reminiscent of the house in Home Alone. 
The couple really loved traveling. They enjoyed nice things like cars and boats, and Darren loved to spoil Darlie. She always had her hair and nails done. She was always decked out in nice clothes and jewelry. And by all accounts, you would think that this family really has it all. They are living the American dream. But that dream would be shattered into millions of pieces on the night of June 5th, 1996. That night, the kids were out of school, so they wanted to have a little camp out in the living room. So Darlie set up some makeshift beds for them on the floor, and she slept near them on the couch in their living room. They all fell asleep until Darlie's son Damon woke her up, saying, Mommy. The second she woke up, she said she saw a man in her living room entering into the kitchen. She said she could only see an outline of a man walking through her house, and then she heard glass breaking. So she immediately got up and started walking to the kitchen where she found a knife on the ground. At this point, she said the intruder escaped the house. So she picked up the knife and flipped on the lights. And that is when she saw Devin lying face up on the floor covered in blood. Nearby, Damon was also on the floor laying on his stomach. She started screaming for Darren, who was upstairs asleep with their eight-month-old son, and calls 911. And at times, it's hard to understand the phone call, but I'm going to play it for you now. Thank you. 
I know that was difficult to understand at times, but in the 911 call, Darlie is absolutely hysterical, and she keeps repeating, my babies are dead and my babies are dying. You can also hear her tell Darren that someone came into their house and intentionally did this. Who would do this? Then when Darlie points out that a knife was left on the floor, you can hear the operator tell her not to touch anything, to which she responds, I already did, and that she hopes they can still get prints off of it. Now this is going to be a point of conversation later on. Also at one point, you can hear her say that she feels really bad and thinks she's dying. So Darren tried doing CPR on Devin, but he recalled blowing into his mouth and feeling the air come out of his chest. Devin was gone. Across the room, Damon was laying on his stomach, moaning and severely injured. Darren was doing everything he could to help Damon until paramedics arrived. He was barely clinging onto life when they loaded him into the ambulance. And meanwhile, Darley is taken to the hospital by ambulance as well, because during all this chaos, she failed to point out that she'd been stabbed in the neck, arm, and shoulder herself. 
The gash on her neck was about nine centimeters long and only two millimeters away from her carotid artery. And the wound to her forearm went all the way to her bone. The wound on her neck alone could have very easily killed her. So upon arriving at the hospital, Darley was immediately taken into emergency surgery, but sweet little four-year-old Damon was pronounced dead on arrival. According to their autopsy reports, Devin was stabbed four times in his chest, his forearm, and his left thigh. However, I'll note that the stab wounds to his chest were much deeper than the wounds to his forearm and his thigh. The wound to his arm only involved the soft tissue, and the wound to his thigh was about three quarters of an inch in depth. That's not to say that these aren't significant, but when you consider the wounds to his chest being two and a half to five inches in depth, it makes you wonder how those two other wounds got there. Could it have been because Devin fought back? Damon's injuries were more focused on his back. Remember, Damon was the one laying on his tummy, still clinging to life when paramedics arrived. He suffered four stab wounds ranging in depth from one and three quarters of an inch to four and a half inches, and he also had cuts to his shoulder and upper back. Damon and Devin would be buried together, sharing the same casket. His dad said they were buried together so that they can walk through heaven together holding hands. Balloons were released at their funeral, and Darley was able to attend, although she was completely in shambles. This crime sent shockwaves through their community. Neighbors were on edge wondering how something like this could happen, especially to two innocent children right next door. Police immediately tried narrowing in on a suspect and first looked at the parents. To them, it seemed like the most logical place to start. So first, they looked at Darren, but his accounts of being asleep with baby Drake checked out, and there was never any testimony or allegations from Darley to make them suspect that he could have been capable of this. So then they turned to Darley, who unfortunately couldn't really recall a whole lot of specific details. She woke up to seeing the outline of a man before he escaped, But you have to remember, she had this horrible gash to her neck and was probably losing a lot of blood. So there's a question of, you know, how long she was conscious, if at any point she was ever unconscious. So I'm going to describe to you now the Rudier's home so that you can get a better idea of the layout. As you're facing the home, once you enter the front door, there is a living room to your left. Then there's stairs in the foyer right in front of you and a dining room to the right. Once you walk through the foyer past the stairs, you'll see the family room to your left and the kitchen to your right. Right off the kitchen is a little nook and a utility room that leads into the garage. The garage is located in the back of the house, and I will have a map of the layout on our social media pages as well so you can see for yourself. But the attacks occurred in the family room right by the kitchen, and Darley alleged that the assailant exited through the kitchen and presumably through the garage. When detectives gathered evidence, they found a cut screen in one of the windows of the garage. They found a fingerprint from an unknown source, and they also told Darley that they were able to get skin particles from underneath her fingernails, presumably belonging to the assailant. By all accounts, they made Darley and Darren feel like they were going to get whoever did this to her and her children. Just eight days after the murders on June 14th, it was Devin's seventh birthday. 
Darley's mom, who was also named Darley, suggested that they celebrate the boy's birthday at the cemetery and try to just make it as joyful as the boys would have wanted. So Darley, along with some of her friends and family, go to the cemetery and they somberly surround the freshly disturbed dirt from their gravesite. They had a prayer service at the gravesite, and some of the boy's friends even attended because invitations for his birthday party had already been sent out. There were balloons and gifts laid on the ground for the boys. And then a local news station came out to record some of the event because this story had really captivated many of the residents. So the cameraman recorded as Devin and Damon's friends and family sang happy birthday and then sprayed silly string on the balloons and the dirt of their grave. Darley could be seen smiling as she sprayed the silly string and Darren stood beside her with his hands in his pockets, appearing to be using every bit of will inside of him just to be standing there. The anchorman interviewed Darley and asked her why the confetti, why the balloons, why the happy birthday song. And she answered, quote, well, because even though we're sad because Devin and Damon aren't here, we try to hang on to what we can to get us through these times, end quote. Well, this didn't really set well with a lot of people. Viewers who saw the footage were disturbed by how jovial she was acting during what truly would have been unbearable for just about anybody else. So two days later, the police asked Darley and Darren to come to the station, and in their minds, they were thinking they were going to be getting great news that they had found this guy or at least had some solid leads. And upon arrival, police brought them both in and sat them down in separate rooms to go back over the details from the early morning hours of June 6th. They even took Darren back to the house to go back over the timeline while Darley stayed at the station. But this was all part of their plan. While Darren was away, they placed Darley under arrest and charged her with capital murder. In a press conference, police announced that they believed Darley killed her two boys, that her injuries were self-inflicted, and that the allegations of an intruder were completely made up. The resemblance was uncanny to the story of Susan Smith, who we covered long ago in episode 27, but Susan Smith was convicted of drowning her two young boys by leaving them in the backseat of her car and letting her car roll into a lake. She claimed for nine days that a black man had kidnapped her sons during a carjacking, only to eventually confess that she made it all up and purposely killed her boys so that she could be in a relationship with her boss who said he never wanted kids. Susan Smith was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 30 years. So she will be eligible for parole next year, but that's for another episode. So on the heels of Susan Smith's arrest, Darley's arrest gripped the nation just as well, and people started picking apart every last bit of her story and actions following the attack on her children. Her trial started just six months later on January 6th of 1997, and can you imagine trying to build a case like this on either side with only six months? I just imagine that that would be very difficult, especially if you're on the defense. So the prosecution claimed that she seemed more concerned on the 911 call with the fact that she touched the knife used to kill her children and that she made mention of it because she wanted to give an explanation to why her fingerprints would be on it. 
They also claimed that the knife wound to her neck was only superficial and very different from the boys' injuries. They were stabbed with no left or right deviation, and I apologize for being so graphic here, but it was an in-and-out motion, whereas the wound to Darley's neck was like being slit from side to side. They also focus on the screen that was cut in the garage. The screen was cut straight down the middle, and there was no evidence that anyone actually entered or exited through that window. Just looking at the picture of it, you would think that there would be more damage to the screen if someone actually had to crawl through that window, that maybe they would have ripped the screen more or even left some sort of damage or evidence on the frame. But instead, the screen just appears to be neatly sliced right down the middle and the screen flaps just hang there, kind of like collars on a button-up shirt. But what the prosecution fails to mention is that this window goes all the way to the ground and it's actually very big. So when you're looking at just the picture of it, you just, I I assumed that it was kind of higher up like a normal window and that maybe it was kind of small, but no, this would have been very easy to go in and out of without ever having to touch the frame. As far as a motive, the prosecution alleged that Darley was superficial, materialistic, and self-centered, and that her motive was financial. See, in 1995, Darren's company amassed almost half a million dollars in gross revenue, and he was paying himself an annual salary of about $125,000, which in 2022 would equate to about $240,000 a year. But they were spending money like it grew in their backyard. They had marble decked out in their bathrooms, a fountain in their front yard. Darren drove a 1982 Jaguar. Darley got breast implants. She wore diamond rings on every finger. She always made sure her hair and nails were done. And according to one report, when her favorite cat died, she spent $800 for a tombstone to put on its grave. But even though they spent a lot of money, they remained humble. They were still very well liked by their neighbors, and Darley was especially loved by the kids in the neighborhood. She was always known to have snacks for the kids, games for them to play. She was incredibly compassionate. She even made a mortgage payment for one of her neighbors who was suffering from cancer. But the following year, in 1996, things started to change. His business was starting to suffer, and it became harder to keep up with that extravagant lifestyle. He owned thousands in back taxes, thousands in credit card debt, and he also got behind on their mortgage payment. So the prosecution told the jury that it was their belief Darley killed her two sons to cash in on their life insurance policies. But the thing is, the life insurance policies only amounted to about $10,000, which wasn't even enough to cover the boy's funeral expenses. If her motive was truly financial, why not kill Darren, who had a life insurance policy worth $800,000? In a journal entry just one month before the murders, Darley wrote about how unhappy she was and asked for forgiveness for what she was about to do. Out of context, you could assume that she's referring to the boy's death, but according to Darley and Darren, she was depressed and struggling with symptoms of postpartum after having Drake, and she was considering taking her own life. In that same journal entry, she said she loved her three boys more than life itself and wanted them to grow up to be happy and healthy and to not believe that what she was about to do was their fault. 
Thankfully, Darren was there to comfort Darlie, and she didn't follow through with her plan. But the state's argument is that this proves she was homicidal because, quote, moms don't typically think about killing themselves. In an episode of 2020 called The Last Defense, the lead prosecutor, Greg Davis, actually tells the camera, quote, parents don't typically think about taking the lives of their own children, and they don't. But we know that mothers don't normally contemplate suicide either, end quote. To me, this just sounds like a man who is wildly out of touch with a woman's body, especially after having a baby. No matter how in tune you are with your wife, you will never be able to fully comprehend just how out of control your hormones can make you feel, especially after you've just had a baby. So to use that against her to claim that she was surely not talking about taking her own life in that journal entry is just so misogynistic and ignorant, in my opinion. The prosecution also tried to paint a picture of a mom who didn't seem to really care that her boys were suffering the night of the murder. One of the officers who arrived at the scene testified that Darley didn't tend to her sons, even when she was directed to, that she stood there holding a towel to her neck. And some of the nurses at the hospital recalled Darley being flat and emotionless when she was told her sons didn't make it. But we just heard her on that 911 call absolutely hysterical. And now she's got a huge wound to her neck. I'm sure she lost a lot of blood. And when you're coming out of surgery and finding out that your sons didn't make it, like we don't know what kind of drugs that she was on because of the surgery or her pain. I just think it's unfair to paint that picture right after she was going through something so traumatic. And we heard raw emotion on the 911 call. The prosecution also wanted to point out that on the night of the murders, Darley claimed that she slept downstairs on the couch so that she could watch over Devin and Damon, but also because she was such a light sleeper. And with Drake sleeping in a crib in their room, his slightest movements would wake her up. So how did she manage to sleep through an intruder busting into her home and attacking both of her sons before attacking her? Also worth noting is that her statement of exactly what happened has differed. In some reports, she says she was awoken by her son saying, Mommy, and that she saw the intruder going through her kitchen, so she slept through a man attacking her and slicing her neck. In other reports, she says that she was awoken to the man attacking her and that she was fighting back. But in one report, she said she fought back while she was laying on the couch. And in another statement, she told a friend that the attack was in the kitchen. Then, of course, there were the distinctions between the injuries. Why would the attacker only cut her throat and not stab her like her two sons? One doctor apparently told one of the investigators that her injuries could be self-inflicted. Not that they definitely were, but that they could be. Well, in all the cases I've seen where someone self-inflicts injuries to make it look like they too were a victim when they were in fact the assailant, the injuries were almost always superficial. For example, the Lululemon murder and Diane Downs come to mind. Both cases, the assailant roughed themselves up to make it look like they were attacked, but in Darley's case, she had a 9-centimeter wound to her neck that was 2 millimeters away from her carotid artery. 
and the bruising on her arms where she was stabbed to the bone went from her wrist all the way up to her armpit. I have never seen a bruise like that. I mean, her arm was black and blue. In my opinion, I just can't look at those pictures of her injuries and reach the conclusion that she did that to herself. I just can't. The defense claimed that this was all a burglary gone horribly wrong. They pointed out that neither Darley or Darren's vehicles were in the driveway like they usually were, so an intruder may have thought nobody was actually going to be home. Also, a neighbor came forward to report a suspicious vehicle in the neighborhood the week before the murders. This is a tight-knit neighborhood, so the residents are pretty familiar with which vehicles belong and which ones don't. This neighbor said that a small black car was parked right in front of her house and she could see a man sitting out front with his head turned, staring at Darren and Darley's house. So this neighbor came outside to approach the vehicle and they sped off. Then she said she saw the same car again strolling through the neighborhood only about 10 hours after the murders took place. She told police about what she saw, but they never even investigated that lead. During the investigation, one cop found a bloody sock laying on the ground near a drainage ditch down the street more than two houses away from the Rudier home. The way this neighborhood was set up, the driveways were in the backyard, and the backyards of these homes all faced each other while the fronts of the houses faced the main street. So it makes sense that an intruder would have left out the back of the house, like Darley claimed, and ran through the alley between the backs of those houses. The blood on the sock matched Devin and Damon's, but how on earth could that sock have gotten there if Darley was in the house the whole time? For me, this one piece of evidence is so telling to me. It's a smoking gun that points to someone other than Darley. According to a piece in Texas Monthly written by Skip Hollinsworth in 2002, Richard Reyna was a private investigator working for Darley's appellate attorney. In the article, it says that in 2001, Darren Rudier admitted that in the spring of 1996, when his business was in trouble and he was $22,000 in debt, he had asked Darley's stepfather, Bob Key, whether he knew anyone who might break into the family's house as part of an insurance scam. Once the furniture and other items were stolen... Darren's plan was to retrieve them from the burglar and then pay him out of the proceeds from this insurance claim. So in 2002, Skip Hollinsworth asked Darren if he had made such a statement and he denied it. But then a few days later, when Skip says he confronted him with affidavits given to him by Darley's stepfather and Raina, he confessed that he had in fact talked to Key about faking a burglary. Skip wrote, quote, When I asked if he had discussed the plan with anyone else, including a couple of reputed car thieves in Rowlett, Darren hesitantly replied, quote, there is a possibility I said the same thing in conversation with people that worked around me. I don't remember what I said, but there's a strong possibility that was on my mind and in conversation I could have said that, end quote. But none of this came out until after the trial. Darley and Darren hired a powerful defense attorney, Douglas Mulder. He pointed out to the jury that there was never a confession, no witnesses, and no real motive. But the lead prosecutor, Greg Davis, painted this picture 
of Darley as a self-centered bimbo who was more interested in her appearance than her kids and showed that video of Darley spraying silly string at the boys' grave sites just eight days after the murders. But the defense attempted to call two of the lead detectives to the stand because there were allegations that these detectives knew about the celebration Darley had planned and placed recording devices at the gravesite in an attempt to hopefully catch someone confessing at the grave. So the issue was that placing those recording devices to essentially spy on visitors of the boys' graves was illegal, and because of that, both detectives refused to answer any questions about it, and they pled the fifth. With that, jurors weren't allowed to see any of the recordings that they got that day, and unfortunately, if they could have seen it, they would have seen a very emotional prayer service earlier that day. They would have heard the sobs from everyone, including Darley, standing at the boy's gravesite, but they didn't. All they got to see was that news clip of Darley spraying the silly string in an attempt to celebrate her son's birthday. This video alone proved to be too much for the jury to bear, and in February of 1997, a jury of seven women and five men found her guilty and sentenced her to death by lethal injection. On her appeal, Darren admitted to the plan to solicit someone to burglarize their house for the insurance scam. There was also an unknown bloody fingerprint that was found at the scene, but at the time, it was argued that there weren't enough points on the fingerprint to test comparisons. However, in her appeal, her appellate attorneys have argued that this fingerprint is eligible for testing and they want it done. And they also want DNA testing done on the sock that was found with Damon and Devin's blood on it. In regards to the fingerprint, a federal judge granted the motion for discovery to get it tested, but then the state of Texas opposed. But in 2018, both the prosecution and the defense requested further DNA testing and the courts granted it. In 2011, Darren and Darley made the difficult mutual decision to file for divorce. But even after the divorce was final, Darren proclaimed his love for Darley and his belief that she is innocent and always will be. In April of 2021, the Innocence Project in New York got involved in the case and won approval for even more testing in the case, ordering all the agencies involved to send their evidence to the Forensic Analytical Crime Lab in Hayward, California. If the California lab determines that a foreign eligible profile is on any of the evidence from the crime scene, then that foreign DNA sample is to be sent to the Acadiana Criminalist Laboratory in Iberia Parish, Louisiana, to determine if it, if it matches the profile of anyone in the national DNA database. Until then, we wait for the results of those DNA tests, but while we wait on the outside, enjoying our freedom... Darley waits in a six by nine cell with concrete walls and steel furnishings where she's been waiting since she was 26 years old. She's now 53 years old. If there are any updates in this case, you'll be sure to learn them here on Mama Mystery as they come out. Until next time, thank you for tuning in. Mama Mystery out. Bye.